My name is Marty. I'm an alcoholic. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here with you today. I want to thank my friend Sheila for about 14 months ago. She asked me if I wanted to speak here. And I said, yes, I really want to speak here. And I'll tell you something before we get get rolling here. Um, there's so much about the steps and traditions that I I treasure, but one thing that meant a whole lot to me in my first year or so when I came into recovery was Tradition 3. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. And when I look back, though, if I'm really, really honest about that, when I first walked in here, I had much greater desire to be a roundup speaker. than actually to stop drinking. Now, God help me. We got my priorities kind of straightened around within a few months. And then I really developed a desire to stop drinking. And all sorts of amazing things happened for me. Amazing things happened for me. And perhaps the most amazing thing, and I'm going to talk a lot about this today, was that I stopped being lonely. You know, I was so lonely when I came here. And uh, loneliness had so much to do with bottoming me out and opening me up to the grace of God and the grace of the fellowship and the power of the steps. You know, but it was a hard thing for me to admit loneliness because, man, if you start talking about how lonely you are, you're not looking good. And I wanted to look good. And one of my real connections with Sheila, and I don't know if she remembers this, maybe she does, is that I used to talk about this in my, in my first year. I'd talk about how lonely I was. I'd talk about my emotions. And, um, and then uh, every once in a while I'd see Sheila and, and at a meeting, and, um, and then she'd you know, say hello to me while she'd be talking. She'd say, Marty always talks about how lonely he is. You know, I, I wasn't too sure I liked that. <laughs> but I'll, I want to emphasize one thing. I, I have um, so much gratitude today, and I want to welcome everybody from out of town. I've already met Joe, and uh, I, I really am, am delighted to, to have all the out-of-town folks here. And I want to welcome all, all, all the new folks, uh, people that are fairly new in recovery. And... Uh, and invite you to really connect with the joy of the fellowship because that's really what took me over the top in my first first little while here. I think um, I think it's it's so important to uh, to also acknowledge that I'm 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 pretty prepared today, but I am also uh, pretty overwhelmed. And part of it is uh, you know some friends of mine that I haven't seen for a while that. Uh, uh, that just showed up today. Um, wow. And I'm going to tell a few stories that, that uh, they're a big part of. Um, my friend Murray P., who uh, is here from Menlo Park, California, um, 32 years sober, June 8th. Thank you. Um, my friend Margot is here, and in 1987, she recruited me to be the alternate speaker chairman. 
And uh, Margot was the speaker chairman in, in 1987, and I, I was helping her out. In 1988, I was the speaker chairman uh, of the Gratitude Roundup. And what a great experience to get into that kind of service work. So thank you, everyone, for contributing. And uh, I want to thank Louise for your uh, support and encouragement. And just thank everybody on the committee for, for doing all this, all this great work. You know, I think, um, you know, when I look at my journey in recovery, um, what, I, what I see a lot of is uh, a lot of experiences I've had and uh, a lot of friendships and love and, and lots of uh, great things and lots of uh, pain. And, and uh, what's happened in my life is I think um, I've been able to integrate a lot of things. Uh, integrate a lot of professional experiences, integrate a lot of personal experiences, integrate a lot of emotions, integrate a lot of insights. But everything I've integrated has come back through the steps. Every part of my life runs through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous because that's the only thing that really works for me. At the end of the day, that gives me the spiritual condition that I need to move forward and have a, a life that, that can be rewarding and gratifying. The kind of life that I always wanted that I just didn't know how to have. And even the fact that I have a life is remarkable. You know, I mean, I, I'm amazed at that. When I think about my experience growing up in Saskatchewan, the thing to do growing up in Saskatchewan when I was 16, 17, 18 years old was to drink a lot of beer, play hockey, play baseball. And I drove impaired all the time, five or six times a week. I never got an impaired driving charge, but I was over 0 .08 every night just about, and I lost a lot of friends that didn't make it. Somehow I made it. Somehow I made it. You know, I, I, um, I'm going to talk about, I hope, some things that, that are helpful to all of us, some things that I need to remember. I'm going to talk at some point um, throughout the next little while about... Uh, what was really key for me in my recovery was, was understanding what I'm afraid of and what I'm going to do about it. Fear controlled my life. Fear directed my behaviors. Fear kept taking me back to, to drinking. Fear made me lonely and fear made me do things that made me ashamed. I'm going to talk a lot about fear today. What, what am I afraid of and what am I going to do about it? And when I can connect with that today, in a really honest way, it takes me back into the steps and it takes me into freedom. And to see that pattern in my life has been powerful. It says in our big book, driven by a hundred forms of fear. And over the years, I, I've gotten more specific. I've understood myself better. I've been able to be more honest about it. I've been able to open up my heart and have more willingness and humility and things have changed in my life. 
I want to start uh, with a little story that happened, I think, in 1963. And I want to mention to my friend Harry that 1963 was a good year because the Leafs won the Stanley Cup. <laughs> That's not a cheap shot. But I had an experience, I was seven years old and I was in the bedroom of this little farmhouse in Saskatchewan and I was sitting on the bed and the light was coming in from the hallway and it was dark and I was sitting there with my mom and I don't know where my brother and sister were, I don't know where my dad was, but I asked my mom this question and I said, Mom, what's God? What's God? I have no idea why I asked her that question, and I'm so grateful that I remember this. And, I, and more than anything, I'm grateful for my mom's answer. My mom had a tough life. My mom grew up in an alcoholic home. She struggled with mental illness all her life. She was a beautiful, loving person. But she came up with a great answer right there. She said, Marty, God's love. And you know, in that moment, in that moment, I don't know what happened. I just got it. God's love. And I felt the unconditionality of that. I felt safe. I felt valued. I felt accepted. I could feel that in that moment. I can still experience that now. God is love. And, you know, what strikes me when I look back on that, on that vision, that experience, is I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't hitting a home run. I wasn't getting an A. I wasn't dancing with a pretty girl. I was just being. I was just being. It was unconditional. There was mercy there. It was so powerful. And I'm so grateful I remember that. But in that room that night, nobody said to me, keep coming back. Nobody said that to me. Nobody said, you know, you can do this every day. But, you know, it worked out the way it was supposed to. I'm, I'm honestly completely convinced of that, that I had to go off and forget about that for a while. And, you know, uh, I, I go ahead to... Just a few months later, and, and this really doesn't make any sense. Just a few months later, it was a June day like this, this little school in Saskatchewan. And I remember how much I had been worrying up until that point. I was worried. I, was, I, I didn't know to call it fear then, but I was so worried. I was worried that I was going to fail grade two. I was terrified I was going to fail grade two, and that makes no sense because I was a long ways from failing grade two, but I thought the teacher didn't like me. And that fear, though, was so deep. Fear of failure. And I, I didn't see it then. I just knew I felt terrible. And then I passed. You know, of course I passed. I mean, school was something that came pretty naturally to me. I, I passed. But you know, that... that, that power of that emotion really, really had me. And I think about 
couple of years later. And this is the, this is the thing that, that, that happened for me, is that fear and ego, fear and being addicted to the response from my fear, really became powerful. And that was the beginning, I think, of my self-will run riot. And no wonder I was running riot, because I was so damn scared. I was so scared. I didn't want to fail. Because I'd forgotten all about this experience I had in that room. My worthiness, my acceptability, my very survival depended on me doing something, depended on me being worthy through my success. And I remember a time where I'm sitting on the back of my dad's tractor, and my dad was an awesome man, and is today still. Uh, and, you know, great dad, good guy. I had so many great experiences riding around on the tractor with him in Saskatchewan. Beautiful July day. I really wasn't thinking about, you know, looking around the countryside or how I'm with this great guy. I was obsessing because I got six A's and one B on my report card. <laughs> That's the, the power of the crazy thinking I had. Because I, I was so wired up to, uh, to be a big success. And that's what I knew was the answer. I knew that was the answer. That was my solution. How can I be driven enough? How can I succeed? You know, and that pattern was, was there so strongly. And, you know, um, I developed this, this uh, manner of living that was really entirely focused on that. I had heroes, and I aspired to be like those heroes. Gordy Howe was number one. Absolutely. Saskatchewan guy. He was my ultimate hero, John Kennedy. Anybody who really delivered results and looked good, right? So I went along, and you know, a lot of good things happened in my childhood. A lot of good things happened. I rolled along, and uh, you know, by the time I was 15, I was uh, leading my baseball team in home runs. I was a leading scorer on my hockey team. I had pretty good marks. My life was was rolling along pretty good. But I still was running on fear all the time. All the time. And through that period, around 13, 14, 15, I, uh, I realized that um, one, of the, one of the strengths I had was to be adaptable. I was really good at figuring out how to how to do whatever it took to be successful and to fit in and to get what I needed to get to fill up that, that hole that was there. I was really good at, at knowing how to, how to do that. And I went to a, a school where achievement wasn't such a big deal. Being a tough guy was really important. Um, and I made a big shift around that time to decide that uh, I was tired of fighting and tired of fighting and losing um, 
in grade eight, I kid you not, in grade eight, I think the average age of the males in our class was about 16. <laughs> you know, I mean, honestly, half, like, you know, I was, I was 13, 14, but there were, there were guys in my class, like, half, like, 15, 16 years old, that we failed people back then in school. <laughs> you know? But these guys were tough, you know? These guys were tough, and it wasn't fun, and you know what? I got tired of it, and I decided, you know what? I'm joining them. I'm... I want to be part of this fellowship. <laughs> you know? So I changed. And I went from being this kid that was at, at age 15. I remember July 1st, 1971, being at this baseball tournament. And it was about as good as it can get for a guy like me. I hit a home run. My dad was there. It was about as good as it could get. I remember a year later, 1972, same baseball tournament. My parents had spent the whole night looking for me. They spent the whole night driving around. My dad was crying. My dad was crying. Where's my boy? He was so scared because I was already so out of control. I was so out of control because I was with those guys. I wasn't fighting them anymore. And I was drinking and I was in so much pain and my parents couldn't figure out what was going on with me. One year, my life changed. From being this big success to being this kid that was out of control. For the next four years or so, I was uh, pretty much a daily drinker. And a lot of things went out of my life. I lost my capacity to have relationships. I lost my capacity to be trusted. I didn't trust myself. I hated myself. I was this guy who was supposed to be following the footsteps of Gordie Howe. But man, that's not where I was going. And I was scared. I was really scared. And I was lonely. I lost all my confidence. You know, I couldn't... You know, I had some great girlfriends when I was 16. Some pretty short relationships, but uh, some great girlfriends. But by the time I was 17, 18, 19, I was so scared, I, I couldn't approach anybody anymore. And, and you know what? By the time I was 17, I couldn't drink enough. I couldn't drink enough to get the confidence, and I could drink a lot. <coughs> Nothing worked. It wasn't working for me. So, I was lonely. I'm a people person. I love people. But I was so blocked. I was so lonely. And I became more and more ashamed. And those were tough years. Those were tough years. And I was trying to figure out, how am I going to get through this? What am I going to do? What's going to pull me up by my bootstraps? I didn't know that there was a power greater than me, I forgot about that, right? I didn't know that, that you could actually live your life in a practical, empowered way, one day at a time. I had no idea. I had no idea. Anybody remember that song, uh, Carly Simon, 1972? I was listening to it this morning. Wow, what a song. 
What a song. You're so vain. <laughs> you know where I'm going with this. That became my theme song. I decided that the only way through this pain was to develop an ego. I consciously, I remember sitting in grade 11, thinking, that's what I got to do, man. You got to suck it up and you got to get an ego. And, you know, you got you to gotta do it outside in. Outside in. You got to build this exterior. You got to look good. It didn't work worth a damn. <laughs> you know, but that's what I thought. That's what I tried. You know, you're so vain. Uh, I thought the song was about me. <laughs> you know, I, I cruised along and, and uh, you know, by the time I was uh, 17, uh, I, I was just a, a total mess and, you know, they wanted to kick me out of school and, and nearly did. And, you know, I kind of stumbled along and, you know, a few, a few things... I managed to suck it up, and, and you know I was good at school, so I, I did finally get it together. Uh, I, I moved from having, and I'm, I'm, I have a very precise memory, uh, and I had an average of 19% uh, with three months to go in, uh, in grade 11, and I, I managed to pull it, turn it around, and got good enough marks to be able to go to university in just a year and a half later. Um, but I was miserable. And, you know, I managed to, you know, have, have a few good things ha happen in my life. I, I played on a terrific baseball team when I was 20 years old. Played with some guys that, that went on to some pretty successful things. Uh, Major League Baseball players, you know, I was able to play with these guys. And uh, not that I was anywhere close. And one of the things that really kept me away from my dream of, of playing baseball was I just uh, couldn't not drink. Uh, it, it really bugged me, you know, practicing baseball every day. When I was 15, I loved it. I, I, I could practice baseball. I could play baseball all day long. You could not wear me out because I was this driven guy. By the time I was 20, in the rigors of a, a season, it was just too much. I needed like a three or four day break where I could just lose it. And, and I remember quitting that baseball team uh, in mid-July of uh, 1976 more than anything because I just wanted to have the release of just going on a bender. And I did. I did. But you know, uh, what, what I really experienced through that, through that period was a, a, a tremendous sense of failure and shame and loneliness. And you know, I I, I, I got to this point where I was so lost and confused and my life was just, you know, not going anywhere. And finally, when I was 21, uh, I, got, I got a little bit of direction. Um, I'd been just kind of working odd jobs, working on my dad's farm and, you know, doing different kinds of jobs. And I decided that uh, I finally saw something that could work for me. And I, I came to Calgary in 1977 and enrolled in Mount Royal College at that time and took uh, broadcasting. And you know that was a good a good fit for a guy like me. I knew a lot about sports. I I uh, put
put my drinking aside, and this, this um, became a very common pattern for me, really the pattern of the next eight years was I became a binge drinker, and I became extremely focused on work. And man, I could work. You know, I was uh, really driven and really adaptable, and um, I did really well in school. And when I was, by the time I was 22, um, I'd actually, on the outside, completely turned my life around. I was working at my hometown television station when I was 22 years old, um, the CTV affiliate in Saskatoon. And man, I looked good. You know, I looked good. And uh, I would go two, three weeks at a time without drinking. And then I'd just twist one off. You know, and my old buddies back in my hometown in Saskatchewan, they'd, they'd laugh, they'd say, ah, yeah, everybody thinks you got it together. We know what you really like. <laughs> we know, we know what you do when you drink. We know that there's just like, everything's on the table. Everything is on the table when you drink. And I continued on for the next few years though like that, right? But I was so trapped because I was, uh, I wanted to be connected with people and I started to meet all these people in, in my broadcasting career and, and a lot of great things happened, you know, I progressed really well, you know. Uh, but I was so trapped because I, I didn't know how to function socially I didn't know how to function emotionally without drinking. I had to drink. So I was a guy that was on television and then isolated. Now this is a sad thing to say, but this is actually what's happened right now as I'm talking, is, a, is quite a metaphoric in terms of actually what happened in my life. By the way, I got married through that period. That was just kind of an afterthought. You know, God bless her heart. She was a great person. A great person. What a great person. But, you know, I was focused on my career. I wasn't focused on her. You know, and she hung in there with me for quite a while. Right? She probably did a lot to, to save me. Probably that little bit of responsibility and certainly quite a bit of support. Probably, uh, really helped me. But I, I, you know, I burned along there for a few years. Uh, and everything's going good on the outside, but I'm miserable on the inside because I'm so lonely and trapped. If I went out and partied with the people that I met through my work, it was scary. I was crazy. I did things that, that were uh, really over the top. And so a lot of the time, because I didn't know how to function without that, I just stayed home, you know. And it was, it was that loneliness, fear, and shame. I was just boxed in. And it wasn't fun. And I had everything going on the outside. You know, I was here in 1980, 24-year-old guy. I got hired June 1st, 1980, seven days after the flames arrived. And I worked for the television station that had the broadcast right for the Flames. You know, that's pretty cool stuff for a guy who a few years later, a few years before, felt like the most 
uh, incredible loser ever, here I am, you know, all this good stuff happening. You know, from 1980, for a few years after that, I had this, I had this great job. And uh, I remember, though, that I, I knew that I had to do something different because I, I just felt so miserable inside. And I didn't do a geographical cure, unless you call moving from Northeast Calgary to the University of Calgary a ge geographical <laughs> cure. That's what I did. I thought, you know what, this, this, it's my job. Well, people say, well, God, you've got a job that you're good at. You're, it's a natural fit for you. How can it be your job? I said, no, it's my job, you know. And I'd go on and on and on and talk about how miserable I was at work, even though it was a great fit for me in a lot of ways. I, uh, I returned to post-secondary education in, in the summer of 1982, fall of 1982, I guess. And, and um, you know, I, was, uh, I really loved going to university. I, I, I did extremely well. I was really a pretty academic person. I enjoyed studying. I got great marks. Um, and I was miserable. You know, all the external stuff in the world, all the scholarships, all the relationships with professors, all the acclaim, um, didn't work for me. I was empty inside. And uh, I remember this sweet girl that was my wife said to me, man, it's all the same. Nothing's changed. You're the same guy. You're the same guy. You just do something different. You just do something different. You're the same guy. And that was so true. And, you know, things moved along. And um, I really hit a bottom. I really hit a bottom when she left. And uh, that just hit me like a ton of bricks. And I remember about um, five or six weeks after she had left, I remember sitting on the couch having a heart-to-heart -heart with her. And um, connecting with how much pain she was in. For the first time in my life, I probably saw the pain of somebody else. And I remember I started crying. And, and I started uh, having emotions. And I hadn't cried since I was a little kid, probably. And I was amazed at how much came out over the next several weeks. Like, it was, it, I thought, this is physically impossible. Like, this, you know, this... This does not make any sense, how somebody could have so many tears. It just, but it was all this loss. You know, things that I didn't grieve, you know, people I lost in car accidents. And, and probably on some level, a loss of myself. You know? A loss of myself, this kid that had all these dreams, you know, this kid that, that wanted to be like Gordie Howe. Man, it wasn't working out that way. You know, all this pain was coming out. And, you know, at that time when that happened, those emotions, when that was happening, I decided, I had a, one really crazy experience where I, 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 I got some really... Uh, crazy, crazy thoughts, and it scared the hell out of me. And at that particular point, I'd actually stopped drinking. And I, I wasn't drinking for a period of nine months. But, you know, when she left, when she left, um, man, 
I was uh, I was in tough shape. Like, what am I going to do? So I went back drinking. You know. Now, in the midst of all this, figure this one out. I was in university, and I'm doing great at university. My personal life is in shambles. Emotionally, I'm a wreck. This job came up at CBC Television. And Calgary was really uh, on the rise in the sports world at that time. We were about to host the 1988 Olympics. You know? This job came up, the number one job at CBC Television in Calgary. I'm a part-time, I'm working there part-time. I'm a university student, hanging out, 27 years old, right? People from all over Canada wanted that job. 45 applicants. They gave the job to me. I got this great job, you know? I got this great job right in the midst of this mess. And uh, it's like the dream come true. How could this happen? How could I get this job? Well, I knew how to make the right people like me, even when I was uh, in the throes of my alcoholism. And I'd worked pretty hard to get good at what I did. And for whatever reason, I got the job. So here I am. You know, It feels like, man, I'm on the top of the, I'm on the, top of the mountain now. But I was drinking because I didn't know how to function socially, and I wanted to get out there and, and meet people. And crazy things would happen when I drank. But I remember a night, about six weeks after I got this job, and I was invited to a party with another uh, fellow that I, I uh, was close friends with. He, he had a pretty high profile in, in Calgary. I was invited to his place uh, for a party. And there was going to be a lot of other TV people there. And I remember how uh, I thought, you know what, I'm going to go to this party and I'm, I'm going to make a good impression. You know, I'm going to, you guys know where this is going? <laughs> I'm going to have two beer. I'm going to have two beer. Yeah. <laughs> right? Right? It's always worked for me before. So I went to this party and, uh, you know, I... I had a couple of beer, and then, of course, I had a, about 20 more. And, you know, it got to be a pretty ugly night. It got to be pretty ugly. And at uh, 4 o'clock in the morning, I'm sitting in, in, this, uh, in this bedroom having a heart-to-heart -heart with this guy that invited me to this party. Like, we're just, you know, we're just sitting there having a, you know, sharing with each other. Uh, and he's telling me, you know, Marty, my life is screwed. My life is really out of control. You know, I got all this good stuff going on, you know, both of us. Like, we got all this stuff going on, but I'm miserable. My life's crazy. I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, I'm going to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. That's what he said to me. I'm going to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, oh, when are you doing that? He said, well, let's go next week. <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> what a guy. What a guy. So I drove home that night, and um, again, I don't know what happened on that, that, uh, that drive home. It, to my recollection, I was pulled over somehow by an off-duty police officer. 
Somewhere on 14th Street, a couple of miles from my house, was, which was in Beddington, and I, I, I may have already been off the road, I don't know. Anyway, somehow this guy didn't give me a, a ticket uh, or anything. He, somehow he helped me get home, and it is very, very foggy, but I, I made it again. And I got home, and I, I was, you know, it was a Sunday, lonely, lonely Sunday. Then it came Monday morning, and I went to work, and I picked up the phone, and phoned this buddy of mine. And I said, you know what, I've been looking, uh, I don't know how I found it, I guess I must have phoned AA. And I said, you know, there's this AA meeting, you know, uh, there's this AA meeting at, uh, it's called Northlanders. Uh, St. Luke's Church in Northwest Calgary. I said, you know, uh, let's go. I mean, we're going to go to this AA meeting. He said, what? <laughs> I'm not going to AA. <laughs> I'm not going to AA. But I went. And I walked in there on October 13th, 1984. I just got off the air. I'm wearing my suit. I walked in there, and uh, the guy that was chairing that meeting that night, it just seemed like, son of a gun, you know. I've known this guy all my life. And he looked me right in the eye, and he knew who I was. Like, I, I was on a television station. In those days, people watched local TV news. We had 100,000 viewers. There were 650,000 people in Calgary at that time. Every night, 100,000 people watched our TV news. So I walked in there. People knew who I was. He knew who I was. He looked me in the eyes. And you could just feel the warmth in that man. You could feel the acceptance. You could feel the encouragement. How much he wanted me to be there. His name was Dennis J. A few years later he became my sponsor. He passed away a few years ago. Great guy. God, he loved me. God, he loved me. He loved me the first time he saw me. And he didn't love me because I was a sportscaster. He loved me because I was a suffering alcoholic. Why would a guy like this come? He was the president of an oil company. You know, he kind of probably knew what it was like to succeed on the outside and be absolutely spiritual, spiritually bankrupt on the inside. You know, so I started going to that meeting. And I went every week. And uh, Started at 8, and I left at 9.01. <laughs> and I did that for a few months. A few months. But you know, a funny thing happened. Through that period, I, I saw my friend Dennis. <laughs> Your name might come up here, Rick, in a few minutes. <laughs> uh, I saw my friend Dennis. And uh, I saw another good buddy of mine, John, and... You know, these, these people were, they, they, they had what I wanted. Like these guys, they had, you know, they were two or three years sober. They looked good. You know, they're doing, doing good things in their lives. There was 45 people that went to that meeting every Monday. We break into three little groups. And there was only one guy there that I really didn't want what he had. He was, I don't know, he's so happy. <laughs> you know, he knew everybody. He was always joking around. Right? Uh, so I remember being at this meeting, and you know, I'm talking about how I need a sponsor. 
And, uh, you know, I'm sharing, and of course I didn't want to ask anybody to be a sponsor, to be my sponsor. You know, I'm just, I'm sharing about this and talking about how, how I'm not really in recovery, I'm just hanging around, blah, blah, blah. And uh, anyway, I'm, at the end of the meeting, this guy comes up to me, this guy that, like, how could I possibly want what he had? He comes up to me and he, he kind of got in my personal space a bit. You know, he's like about six inches from me. He looks me right in the eye and he said, I'm going to adopt you for a while. <laughs> God blesses us in so many ways and in that particular moment, he blessed me as a people pleaser. You know, I said, okay. I'm thinking, my God, wow. <laughs> I've really hit bottom now. <laughs> that guy saved my life. He saved my life. You know, he uh, he's an uh, unbelievably insightful person. Unbelievably insightful person. We went for coffee one night, just a few weeks after that. I remember in this little uh, restaurant down in Kensington, and uh, there wasn't very many people in there, probably a good thing, uh, kind, of, kind of talk we had. But I remember sitting there at this table and, you know, I could feel this guy's compassion and love and acceptance of me, you know. And uh, I'm starting to think, you know, this is probably a pretty good thing. And this guy seems to get me, you know. He was, and, and you know, he, he, he was an amazing man in the sense that he gave me the great gift of starting to introduce the idea that maybe you shouldn't take yourself quite so seriously. <laughs> maybe you should lighten up. And he spent a lot of my first year laughing at me. <laughs> Making fun of me. He had another buddy that they, they were good at it, man. They were good at it. But I knew they loved me. I knew those guys loved me. And, um, and he said to me... Uh, what do you do, Marty? Or no, no, it was more, uh, who are you? That's what, that was the question. Who are you? So, you know, I mean, I gave him a good answer. Yeah, I'm a sportscaster. I'm kind of an athlete still. I'm a brother, and I'm a son. And uh, I used to be a husband. You know, I started talking about all these things. I'm a student, going on and on. He said to me, those are things that you do. What you are is a child of God. What you are is a child of God. Nothing more and nothing less. I don't know if I remembered that experience I had when I was seven at that time when I was 28. But man, that hit me right in the heart. You're nothing but a child of God. You're a child of God. Nothing more, nothing less. And I could feel the acceptance and I started to feel that at AA, and you know what? People said, keep coming back. They said, keep coming back, and I started to feel that. But you know, uh, I, I had things a bit out of order. You know, I started to connect with AA and connect with this gentleman. Um, but, of course, I met a girl, and we went on holidays. And it became really important to me on that holiday that uh, this relationship worked, right? 
And I remember driving back from Vancouver and, um, you know, being incredibly fearful that this relationship was going to end. Incredibly fearful. And feeling like such a loser, you know, feeling like, you know, I just, I, I really care about this person, I can't make it work. I can't make it work. Really care about this person and, you know, she's going to dump me because I'm not who I should be. I don't drink, I don't party, talking about all this AA stuff, right? And uh, I drank in Kamloops, April 10th, 1985. I haven't had a drink since, one day at a time. That was an ugly night. Never again did she suggest I should drink. <laughs> I got back to Calgary, and I met with his sponsor, and I said to him, you know, Bob, I want something different. I need to do a step four. He looked me right in the eye, and he said, you need to do step one. <laughs> the freedom of Alcoholics Anonymous started that day for me. When I could admit, man, I can't do this by myself. I have to make my sobriety the number one thing in my life. It's got to come before everything else. And I have to look at the reality that, man, I can succeed on the outside. I can win scholarships. I can be a, a big shot on TV. But I can't stay sober. I can't deal with the loneliness. I can't deal with the fear. It's got to come from inside, and I need... I need the, the willingness that comes from the acknowledgement that uh, I'm powerless over alcohol and that my life is unmanageable. Now, a few things happened after that that were really embarrassing. You know, I, um, and I'm just a little bit kidding. So, I remember go going to the, to the meeting that I uh, was, uh, my home group, a few weeks later. Not a few weeks later, a few days later. It was, and I walked into that meeting, and, and I had been, uh, I had made a commitment before I relapsed to chair, and uh, so I'm chairing this meeting, and I said to my sponsor, "Well, you know, I, I don't know. Do you think it's appropriate that I should chair?" And he said, "No, you're chairing." Uh, <laughs> so I chaired the meeting, and I, I started out, you know, and I'm, I mean, I'm a good performer. I know how to do stuff like this. So I was faking it and everything's going fine, you know. So I go around and do the things that chairs do, right? Anyway, I get to this uh, ask the first speaker to speak and uh, you know, this guy just lays it out. You know, I didn't tell anybody I drank, you know. I, I was just doing my thing. And this guy just lays it out, you know. He just lays it out. Man, I've had a terrible week, and I'm, I, I had a few, a few weeks in, and I relapsed. And my God, my life's a mess, and my, life, my wife's leaving me, and I lost my job. And the guy's just so honest, right? You know, I think, oh, okay. Well, he finished, and I said, well, thanks for sharing. <laughs> so then I, uh, I asked somebody else, and they'd been drinking too. <laughs> and then I asked my buddy Rick <laughs> and he'd been drinking too <laughs> and then I said oh what the hell I got drunk last week too <laughs> I think people remembered that meeting for a long time 
<laughs> and then a couple of days later, you know, uh, this had been prearranged prior to my relapse too. <laughs> oh boy, I was the speaker at uh, <laughs> an open speaker meeting at the Stampeder Hotel. It was a great meeting, about 50 people there every Sunday morning back in those days, and I'd been invited to speak there and. And I said to my sponsor and, the, and this other buddy of his who invited me to speak, I said, I can't speak. I'm like, like a week's sobriety. And they said, no, you're speaking. <laughs> so I spoke and, uh, you know, I don't know what I said, but I did it. And, you know, my sponsor thanked me and he said, you know, next time, uh, next time, Marty, somebody tells you that you're not an alcoholic like your girlfriend did, next time somebody tells you that, don't feel like you have to prove that you are. <laughs> so, a lot of great stuff started to happen in my life. You know, there's a couple of guys right, right here, Murray and Rick. Uh, we were part of a big book study in my first year of sobriety. And my God, you talk about, uh, thank you, you talk about uh, tremendous passion for recovery. Unbelievable. And we showed up there every Tuesday night, and when I was with those guys, nothing else mattered but love and compassion, and I knew I was going to make it. Many of those guys are still sober today. That became the heart of my life. That reached my fear. It reached my loneliness. And I started to understand about myself. And I started to move forward. And... For the next few years, I had a great passion for recovery, but I hit a tremendous bottom when I was about two and a half or three years sober. Because really, on some level, I'd made uh, some great progress, but fear of not being enough, fear of having to be a superstar, of not being a superstar, and, and like, who was going to love me? And I was in a relationship. I was in a relationship, and it was... Uh, Two months before the Calgary Olympics, the timing wasn't good. Uh, two months before the Calgary Olympics, and I hit a bottom, man. And I'm, I'm on this uh, track to do a lot of coverage of the Olympics for CBC television, and I hit a bottom, and my guts were ripped out. And I was laying on the floor in my house in Beddington praying, and that's one thing these guys taught me how to do. They taught me how to pray. They taught me how to, how to surrender. And I was completely confused. I was completely confused and, and desperate and hurting so bad and hopeless. And I started to reach out and I, I got some uh, great help from my, my friends in AA. And I got some outside help. And I started to roll that into the steps. I started to roll that into the steps and... And my life started to change, and I got more secure, and I got more confident, and I started to believe that I could have a relationship. You know, at that point, I don't know how suicidal I was, but there were a couple of counselors that thought I was suicidal. I had a couple of contracts with people, so they were pretty scared. I was in pretty rough shape. But I had the capacity to reach out. I had the capacity to be honest about how much I was hurting. And God showed up through people. And I started to develop more insight, more understanding, more willingness to change, more humility to ask for help, and that's what I ran through the steps. 
Over the next uh, few years, I continued to be very involved in AA. I, you know, sponsored people. I had a great passion. I made a big decision when I was seven years sober and one of the best decisions of my life. I left broadcasting. I had all the fame that I could have wanted. I left broadcasting and I decided I wanted to really help people and I, I returned to the University of Calgary. I studied for four years and I became a clinical social worker. You know, I was 36 years old when I made that decision. It was scary. Um, but my God, what a great decision. How well that worked out for me. Um, how, how much that gave me the opportunity to be of service and to practice these principles in, in all my affairs. And that's what I've been doing for the last 20-some uh, years in various capacities. I, um, I remarried in uh, 1990, so I was about five years sober, I guess. And, um, you know, we moved along in our lives and, and were very involved in recovery. And eight or nine years later, it was really clear to me that I wanted to be a dad. And we were blessed in 1999 with my daughter Mary. The sweetest words I ever heard were Dada. And, you know, I moved forward in my life. Um, and to understand the, the power of recovery, I had to understand the power of honesty. And I had to keep praying. And I learned about deeper meditation. And more and more, my, my life became about surrender and, and being honest. And my recovery became deeper and deeper. And I, and I had an incredibly devastating experience for me and for my family. When I was 22 years sober, I got divorced. And that hit me very hard. And up until that point, I, even though it seemed so clear, I'd done the steps. I'd done step four and five a number of times. I'd done a few step fives. But I hadn't really seen how much this fear of failure had controlled my life. How much this image had controlled my life. And, man, I didn't look good at that point. And I felt like an absolute, utter failure. The thing that I wanted most to succeed at hadn't worked out. And I went through a period where it was really dark. You know, 22, 23, 24 years sobriety, but I had great support and I learned a lot. I learned a lot about, about the necessity of failure and I started to get more and more back to that conscious contact I had when I was seven years old and I would talk about my pain and I just was accepted and, and I learned more and more about myself and I've studied so many other things but it all comes back through 
through the steps. And about eight months after uh, my ex-wife and I split up, completely out of the blue, with no planning on my part, like all the other great things in my life, I met Jane, my wife, today. Didn't plan it. And I told my buddy a few months later, I said, wow, this is really going good. He said, you're really lucky you never met her before. You would have screwed it up. (laughs) I know I just have a couple minutes left. and, And, you know, understanding... What am I afraid of and what am I going to do about it is is powerful in my life. Um, Understanding that we all have different things, driven by a hundred forms of fear, right? We all have our things. That's my thing, right? I know people in recovery who, you know, are afraid of being vulnerable, afraid of making a mistake, afraid of not having a lot of options. There's a lot of different ways that our self will run riot. But, you know, for me to see that more and more and work that in my life every day, and it's not fun to do, and sometimes I I don't want to do it, and sometimes I don't want to admit what I'm afraid of. But how deep this stuff is in us, how deep it is in us, right in our bodies, right? We have these emotional reactions that can throw us off track and set us on this path on this path of self-will. And sometimes it feels great. You know, most of my mistakes in my life I've made because I try too hard. That's me. I try way too hard. But when I've been able to be honest about my fear and and, uh, start to relax a little bit and trust that, wow, God's right here. Right here. And amazing things happen. I get a power that I never had. My professional life is really important to me. And I have a professional life that is just full of relationships that are going great. Going great. You know, people trust me. I work at a university. I work at the University of Calgary. And... and, uh, you know, have so many friends there and people trust me and give me opportunities and I trust them and, you know, uh, I had an experience where I won an award there a few weeks ago and um, for collaboration. Now, if you know my story, I wasn't always the collaborator, man. I was kind of like, you know, I relate to Kobe Bryant. Just give me the ball and get out of the way. You know, that was my style. It's not the way I work anymore. I work... Uh, because God brings us together to do special things. It's just not all about me anymore. It brings us together in Alcoholics Anonymous. It brings us together all over the world if we're willing to surrender and really listen. But for me to really listen, i got to let go of my fear. I have to let go of my fear that, you know what? I can trust that things are going to work out here. I don't have to do it all by myself. I've had a pretty good example of that. How we've done this. You know? So these people at the University of Calgary have been talking about what a great listener I am and all this sort of stuff, you know. 
But when, and this is what I'm going to close with, when it really comes down to it, when I really need to listen, is in the things, in the areas where I really need to trust is when it's most important to me. When things are most precious to me. When I'm the most vulnerable. When there's the threat of loneliness. This is my life where the power of the step shows up if I let it show up. I had a conversation with my precious wife this week. Where she was talking about how she was doing. And of course, I immediately wanted to tell her how I was doing. <laughs> Self-centeredness comes really natural to me. <laughs> High five, hey, Rick. <laughs> um, but you know what? I listened to her. That's what she told me a few days. It helped. I listened to her. And we come together in love. We come together in love because we understand each other a little more deeply. And God can get in there then. God can get in there and do what He has to do. Because we get out of the way. Because we get out of the way and this power comes in. Because it's not about whether I'm going to fail or not. I'm willing to throw it wide open and just trust. And over and over again, the miracles unfolded when I've been able to do that. Thank you for being here. Thank you for supporting me. Thank you.